Pray with me. Lord, we are grateful to be here today to celebrate the joyous occasion of baptism. We ask, Lord, that up until then, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be pleasing and acceptable to you, our, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Isaiah can be a tricky book to follow. Not only is it ancient prophecy, it's poetry. And it's long. And it doesn't have a lot of narrative or pictures. I mean, come on. God gives the prophets visions. Why not a couple holy pictures spread throughout the good book? I don't know. But anyhow, Isaiah really is one of the hardest books in the Bible to get a grip on. And yet, it seems to be the single most important book as a witness to the coming of Jesus from the Old Testament. In particular, we find his prophecies um, on the mysterious character of the suffering servant who appears in the back half of the book, who is the subject of our passage today. But before we can turn our attention to him, to this suffering servant, I think we probably all need a little refresher on what's going on in the world of Isaiah. So, quick recap. Isaiah is a prophet at the end of the kingdom and into the exile. To those of you unfamiliar with Jewish history, think David, Solomon, kingdoms great, everybody else real bad, couple generations down the line, things have gone to pot, were taken out of the promised land into exile, people really hurt and disappointed. So Isaiah is there as a prophet while they're teetering. Kingdom's about to collapse, and he's actually a prophet into the collapse, and that's where our passage will come today. But he is told from the get-go when he's called, God gives him a job. He says, Isaiah, I want you to reach out to this nation of unfaithful people. And they're going to be blind and deaf to everything you say. And Isaiah says, sounds great. How long? And he's like, it's going to be a long time. But it's going to change. And so, by the time we get to our verses in chapter 49, the people have ignored those warnings long enough. They've been kicked out of the land, but from the ashes, hope is rising. God has been giving Isaiah messages of restoration, of comfort. So now a new vision comes, and Isaiah speaks with words not his own. He speaks as the suffering servant of Yahweh. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples, from afar. In these first two lines, we learn something important about the servant. The fact that he is commanding the attention of peoples 
far off shows that he is operating with Yahweh's authority, even in a distant land, after Jerusalem and the temple have been burned to the ground. I mean, imagine being one of these exiled Jews, watching Isaiah as he's having this vision, as he's presenting this sermon, prophesying about this new figure with God's authority when you thought that God had left you to die. Feel the excitement. The prophecy continues, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So far, everything sounds amazing. This new figure has been set apart from birth to be the Lord's, to be in the Lord's service, to be a weapon at Yahweh's disposal and for his glory. And while a sword-tongued ready arrow sounds awesome to me, what would have stood out as more encouraging to Isaiah's audience is this one word, servant. In the Old Testament, there is really only one servant of God, and that is Moses. Moses, the great leader of the Exodus, the one faithful who brings the people, the rebellious people, through the wilderness and up to the promised land. He is the greatest and most respected leader of the Jewish nation ever. Not only is this new figure going to be set apart and gifted, he may just be the next great Moses sent to lead the people out of captivity into the promised land again. Indeed, as the back half of verse 3 suggests, he will represent all of Israel, as he becomes God's instrument to bring glory back to himself. But then the next lines present a moment of tension. But I said, this is the servant, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. It almost sounds like this great figure would not be enough. It sounds like his efforts would come to nothing, and his only consolation would be his righteous standing before God. Could it be? Could this new Moses really fail? Is exile the end for the people of God? Of course not. Though the servant may find himself brought low like Israel, certainly the Lord will lift his servant to new heights. And that is exactly what happens in the final three verses of this vision. And now the Lord says, 
He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Though the servant was brought low for a moment, God becomes his strength. Then he is given power enough to reach even more. With God's strength, his servant will be a witness all the way to the end of the earth, bringing foreign kings and princes into reverent worship of Yahweh, of our God. Can you imagine the kind of hope this would bring to a Hebrew currently living in the oppression of a foreign ruler? We would be saying, let that servant come now, let him come, let him come. Well, I'm sure that none of you will be shocked to hear that the servant did come. And his name was Justin. No. No, of course not. His name was Jesus. We all know the answer. If you knew nothing before you came in here this morning, you knew the answer would be Jesus. Of course. Jesus was called. He was given a miraculous birth set apart from the womb. He spoke to Jews and foreigners with the total authority of God. He also spent all of his strength to fulfill his calling and then was given new life, and more strength in the unity with the Father and the Spirit. He checks all the boxes. He even says himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew that he was the great servant and called us to be the same. This Friends, is our problem this morning. This is our great challenge. If Jesus is the suffering servant, then we, every Christian taking up our cross, are also the suffering servant, right? I mean, if we claim that we have been crucified with Christ and now only have life in Him, that means that each of us should identify with this servant in some rather uncomfortable ways. To be a Christian is to surrender your own hopes, time, money, body, to a God who will use them to the point of exhaustion. George Herbert once wrote on this challenge of uncertainty when entering into this surrendered life in Christ. This is at the end of his poem, Affliction. Now I am here, 
What thou wilt do with me, none of my books will show. I read and sigh, and wish I were a tree, for sure then I should grow. To fruit or shade, at least some bird would trust her household to me, and I should be just. Yet, though thou troublest me, I must be meek, in weakness must be stout. Well, I will change the service and go seek some other master out. Ah, oh, my dear God, though I am clean forgot, let me not love thee if I love thee not. This is the challenge. This is what I'm leaving you all with today. Especially my brother and sister being baptized. Being a Christian is not a set of rather conservative ideals and peculiar cultural habits. It is a religion of real power and real price. I actually don't know what God will do with you. He is not a tame God. As your priest and your friend, I am excited to see what he does with you and your family. But I have to warn you now, that it will be more than you can handle on your own. I myself have wished at times that I could seek some other master out. But this God who demands is also the God who provides. If you are willing to go all in, he will not fail to show you a miraculous new life. But, and this goes for all of us, heed Herbert's last line. Let me not love thee if I love thee not. There is no room for half commitment. The only way to live our calling is to be constantly renewing our love for Jesus, the true suffering servant, by the Holy Spirit that he gives us through baptism. Lord, may you grow in each of us a new love for you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all the days of our lives. And give us courage to follow you wherever you will lead, even unto the ends of the earth. Amen.